0: If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to James 1, we'll pick up where we left off last week. We're looking at something that I'm calling an ancient principle or the ancient principle. Now that's not an official name that it's ever had. That's just something that I want to bring up so that when we have a conversation about the ancient principle, we'll know exactly what we're talking about or we can refer back to it. And the reason is, is because the ancient principle is true But it's often misappropriated. And so everything that we are working towards is how do we as Christians go about building up the body of Christ? And we are starting with a very basic directive, a very basic prescription. And so if you would, look at chapter 1 of James, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now I think it's important that you remember if you were here last week, that word prove is not prove that you got it. That's not the idea. The actual meaning of the word means to come into being. Keep coming into being as a doer of the word. It should be a perpetual mainstay that you return to again and again and again. So, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now let's make sure that this illustration is clear because it's often misrepresented. The idea is that you go to the mirror and you see who you truly are. And when you step away and walk out the door, you forget who you truly are and you live as someone that you are not. Does that make sense? Now, how do we know that? Look at the illustration one more time. A man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, verse 24, for once he's looked at himself and gone away. He has immediately forgotten, notice this, what kind of person he was. In other words, you're neglecting who you are. It's a tragedy, is it not? (laughs) oh no, it sounded like Mr. Bill back there. So now here's the flip side, verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, now that's not the Mosaic law, okay? Let's get that out of our thinking. Just because it says the word law, Don't always automatically assume that it's the Mosaic Law. He tells us what this law is, the perfect law. And notice what he says the law of what? Liberty. What is the opposite of liberty? Bondage. The law of liberty. Looking intently. Now, same mirror, yes. Same person, yes. But looking at yourself and taking note of who you truly are. That is the law of liberty. That is the perfect law that says who you are. Well, I don't feel that way. That's okay. It doesn't change who you are. Now, what is the law of liberty? Let's read the rest of this and put it all together. Notice, looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, here it is, what's the word? Abides. What does that word mean? Do we remember? Stays. What? Continue. Perseveres. Mm, Yeah, kinda. It's perfectly interchangeable with the word remains. You stick there. You stay there. Because of the weather yesterday, many of you abided at home, right? You remained at home. You stayed there. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me bears what? Much fruit. For apart from me, not abiding, not remaining, you can do what? Everybody see how that works? It's the same idea here. Now watch this. The perfect law of liberty, you look intently at it and you abide by it. You hold fast in remembering who you truly are when you look at yourself in the face of God's word, okay? Look what it says. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. What is the law of liberty? Skip up to verse, or back up to verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all remains of wickedness, that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, already implanted, which is able to save your souls, which is able to cause you to live a life in such a way as a believer in Christ to where it has worth and value and that it matters in God's eyes in eternity. Living now with the future in mind. You say, that sounds like a daunting task. It is. And if you didn't have a perfect Savior that accomplished everything you needed through his death and resurrection that supplies you richly and sufficiently to live that Christian life, you would be facing a severe uphill battle. In fact, you should probably go ahead and just bury yourself and be done with it. Because that's the idea of living in the flesh. Accomplishes nothing. Okay, an illustration's come to my mind. Give me just a second. Where is it? Where is it? Here it is. What good is this? It's a jump rope. There you go. Nothing. We often live our Christian lives like this, plugged into ourselves. This is the life of the flesh. Some of us try to get real tricky. We'll have like a like a what are those things? Um, what are they called? Good grief. Why is it? Power strip. I got mini plugs. Right? I got mini plugs I'll plug into. There's still no what? Still no power. And when we look at ourselves apart from what God says about us in his word the word that is already implanted because we are already believers when we're not receiving what God already says about us in living a life that is redeeming itself in this earthly life, we're just running in the flesh. And if you wonder, good grief, I get so tired of church. I get so run down in my Christian life, those types of things. Chances are we might be plugged into just us. All the truth we have to go off of is just right here. And I'm going to promise you this, there ain't none of it here. There's no truth here. The only thing that is ever true about me and about you is what Jesus has done for you, who he is in you, and what he has said about you. That's why truth is a person, not a concept. That's important to understand. Truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we understand this idea of how do I become an effectual doer, many of us immediately want to pull out the calculator or the yellow pad or the abacus or whatever you want to say. We're getting out our daily planners and we've thrown out our pens and we're jotting down ways that I could not just be a hearer but also be a doer. How can I receive doctrine and apply at the same time? And what we find is that we rut ourselves in a rat race that is devoid of grace it's just me trying harder and doing better we call that bootstrap theology pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get the job done i promise you it won't be done well if it gets done at all and god receives no glory in it why because the glory ultimately was all about what I was doing. Everybody with me? Okay. With that in mind, let's step out of James. You could actually read the second chapter of James. And I encourage you to do this if you're looking for something to read throughout the week. And there are two instances. The idea of how you treat rich people and poor people whenever the church gets together for its assembly. The idea of favoritism and prejudice. That's not, that's not living by the law of liberty. And then you also see the idea if you see someone in need and you don't do anything for them, you're of no benefit to the body. That's another instance of sadly being hearers only and not doers and operating in the flesh and not operating in the spirit. Let's step out of James and let's see what Jesus has to say. will not you turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 5. This is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has caused great controversy with people over the years because they are unsure of how to interpret it. It's weird because it occurred in the Gospels, and because it's in the Gospels, Jesus hasn't died yet, and so it's under the dispensation of the law, and I don't know if we can really apply it now. When Matthew wrote it, he was already part of the church age, and so he's documenting things back, looking back on Jesus' life, and so could it have some application? If we wanted to take it very generally, we could understand it like this. Jesus is giving a life ethic, for followers of Christ that give way to and end times hope, or let me say it this way: Jesus wants to point out that the way we live our life now matters because it contains great blessing and reward for the future is the idea, or eternal rewards book, yes, are you teaching today, or is Pastor Steve teaching your? Pastor Steve is teaching your class today, okay, when are you going to start okay? The whole reason why Steve's out there is because more people come. That's good. Okay. What are you teaching again? Okay. You're going to let Tom teach? Okay. There we go. I wouldn't recommend it. So, okay. Now, I don't have this up on the board, but I want you to look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 first, so that we see who's involved, okay? Look at this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain And after he had sat down, and real quick, whenever you had a Jewish rabbi that went into a seated position, they were taking the position of teaching. Now, this is real fun, because everybody who he was teaching was supposed to stand as the students. Now, I want to get that instituted here. I want to be able to sit, and y'all stand. I think it'll work out well that way. I don't know. Pray about it, whatever the Spirit tells you, okay? So notice, after he sat down, his disciples, there's his audience, came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, now watch some of these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who have a spiritual attitude of humility are those who will possess the kingdom. Everybody see that? Man, that's a big blessing. That's a big deal. Now how about move forward just a little bit. You can read this whole sermon if you want. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Move forward just a little bit. Look at verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now notice, because of him. Not because you're attacking the pants. Not because you have some personal fleshly axe to grind. The reason why you're being persecuted is because your relationship with Jesus is evoking a spiritual rebellion in other people as to where they are retaliating against you. Everybody see that? Now watch. You're blessed if that happens. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Doesn't that kind of sound like the beginning of James? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. And you're like, what in the world is this man thinking? But notice here, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great for in the same way here's the example we can look at for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you in other words the old testament gives you repetitious examples of people who remained faithful who knew god's word and stuck with it despite the consequences that may come because they understood there were greater consequences on the other side does everybody see that the earthly consequences matter nothing. Why is that? Because what God has said about the situation will always be triumphant. Always. Now let's look at another one here. How about if we look over at chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. Let's look at that. This one really hurts everybody. And stick with me because these are all things that he's commanding, prescribing, saying that needs to be happening in the life of a disciple. But well, we're going to wrap it all up at the, bottom, at the end of it, at the bottom of this, so that you understand how it all pulls together, okay? Look at 46. <clears throat> For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the sum. I, I love it whenever Jesus brings the IRS into a conversation. I think it's great. Good grief, tax collectors do that. What's so special about that? Isn't that funny? Look what he says after that. If you greet only your brothers, oh, pay attention, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Do not even the godless pagans have a cordial spirit towards one another? What is he implying here? He's implying that our attitude amongst other people, even those who don't agree with us, who may be considered enemies that we may be at odds with, It doesn't matter. It's easy to love the people that you love. It's heavenly to love the people that don't love you. Everybody see how that works? Now you sit here and go, good grief, that's hard. That's real difficult. In fact, I would say that we have a lot of problems with it because we're trying to handle it like this. Don't we often go, Lord, I know I need to love this person. We have that like serious conversation. I know I'm supposed to love. And then the next word in our prayer is it's a sigh. Because let's be honest, where's the frustration? The frustration is I don't have the capacity to love anybody. There's admitting the truth. How about this? Let's look over at chapter 6. And look at verse 1 real quick, because I want, I want you to just see what the subject is here It's going on. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Everybody see that? That's the subject that we're looking at here. We're going to see different ways of practicing righteousness and what it looks like. God's way, man's way. Okay, Of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now let me ask you a question. Why would you practice your righteousness for others to see? what's that we want approval recognition make yourself feel good we all want to feel good don't we if you're here this morning you're sick you i just wish i would get better <laughs> right i'll take whatever because we just want to feel good that's just a desire that we have you know what the itch is better scratched by god than us it the need is better met by God, than us. Well, I want people to know how holy I am. Would we ever say that out loud? Would you ever say that out loud? Man, can you imagine? Hey, I'm going to go help this person. Check out how holy I am. You say, good grief. That person is full of themselves. But don't we often do the action? We just never tell people what our motives are. Everybody see this? So notice, Jesus is going to give us a better way. Verse 2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. Can you imagine? Here I am! Right? You can see it. When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. As the... What are they called? Check that out. It's important, church. Because notice, a hypocrite has a lot to do with hearing what is right to do and not effectually doing the thing that needs to be done. Manipulating it, twisting it, maneuvering it so that it serves self, not others. Watch this. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men, Jesus was wise about their motives notice what it says, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Their reward is, wow, you see what they're doing? That's the reward. That's what they get. That's all. They've created a ceiling for themselves by operating in the flesh. And all they get is a way to go, man, wish I could be like you. Wow, really selfless. Notice that it does nothing but promote self-righteousness. Everybody see that? It's all about how righteous can I be in myself. What good things can I do apart from the power of God? I'm just going to start carrying this there. I'll do that. This is my yoke in life. Here it is, verse 3. But when you give to the poor, do not. Now notice how funny this is. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, if you didn't immediately think of sock puppets, you're, you'll probably clear a, a psych evaluation. Me, I think sock puppets. Hey, what are you doing? I don't know what you're doing. I don't, I'm not doing that, you know. That's what goes on up here. Verse four. Why is that? Here's the reason why so that your giving will be in secret. You know the great thing about giving no one has to know. No one has to know. Why is that? Because it's the opportunity to applaud one another for self-servitude. And if the applause comes forward, that's all you get. God will give you nothing. And here's the great thing about God. God wants to give. God loves giving. God is a giver by nature. He wants to give, 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 give. In fact, we call his giving grace. He loves to grace us. I like being graced. I love it. Notice that I can dismantle that situation when I move what God has had to say about a situation out and I promote self and I try to live by the flesh that I'm in bondage to. It's a formula that just doesn't work. How about looking down here at five and six? When you pray. So notice the first part's giving. When you pray. You're not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Praying to be noticed. I'm talking to God so that others will see. Notice what it says after that. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Everybody know what the inner room is? It's the room that's away from the windows. That you're not tempted to pray with the windows and the blinds open. It's 12 degrees outside, but you threw them open anyway so that you could be heard praying through the screens in case anybody's walking by. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? It's really not, is it? Because if it wasn't that scenario, we'd create another one to get noticed. It's kind of like when people are panning across a crowd on TV. Everybody's watching this event that's supposed to be so amazing and they're all kind of going. And then the camera comes by. Hey! I'm so excited to be on TV. Woo, number one. Yeah. they Hold their shirt out. That kind. Of that's the tendency of what Christianity can become like when it's done here. We really weren't having much fun, but when the spotlight was on us, And let's be honest, the reason why we weren't having much fun was because we know we're tied into this. It's fleshly. That's why we're not getting anything out of it. God's not moving because there's nothing of the Spirit in it. But when the camera came our way, good grief, we were as holy as the day is long. You would have thought we were Christian Gandhi if you would have given us a medal for it. How about this? Moving on here. Chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. Look at this. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do. Nobody needs to know that you're fasting. When somebody says, well, I've been fasting about this for a long time, I want to be like, well, don't ever tell me about it. Why? Matthew six 16. don't tell me. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Everybody's starting to see a pattern? A self-serving pattern that leads to a limited, fleshly, man-centered reward. We settle for far less than what God has in store already in store. It's already laid up. He's already waiting to give it to us. In fact, I would say that he's already pouring it out. But remember from last week, if your glass is not under the faucet, you will not benefit from the flow. It's impossible. Notice what he says, but when you fast, anoint your head with oil, wash your face. That means Vidal Sassoon and shave. That's what it means. Shampoo and get it together, man. Don't let anybody know. No one needs to know about these things. Verse 18, so that your fasting will be, not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. How about chapter 7? You say, where in the world are you going? I'm building a case, stick with me here. Chapter 7, look at verse 7. <clears throat> Ask, and it will be given to you is that plain good grief it's plain it's so plain i miss it asking it will be given to you what's the next one seek what's it say and you will you'll find it knock and it will be open to you i don't understand why god's not coming to the door on this one because you didn't knock It's pretty simple. Notice verse eight, for everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, would give him a stone? Now, if somebody came to your mind, shame on you. Think better you know of anybody good grief if nathaniel came to me and said daddy i'm hungry there's some rocks over there go ahead and bite down on one and see what happens good grief i'd be arrested wouldn't i yeah notice this it's 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 a a funny picture verse 10 or if he asks for a fish he will not give him a snake will he you say good grief i hope not verse 11 if you then, now notice how Jesus wraps this together. If you then, being evil, now real quick, we freak out about the word evil. He is talking to the disciples, but this word could also mean the idea of they're wicked or they have a base mind or they're bad, or it could be the idea of they're degenerates or they're deficient in some way. Imperfect is the idea going on here with it, with, with like an underlying um, negative connotation to the idea. But look what it says here. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. If it just comes naturally that if your child asked for something to eat, you would put something together for them and you would want to feed them well. You wouldn't give them things that would hurt them and mess them up. Notice, he says here, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who Ask him. Notice, all I need to do is ask. Here's the question. Are we asking? All I need to do is seek. Are we seeking? All I need to do is knock. Are we knocking? Everybody see how that works? Because if we've had earthly parents who would still give us good things and they're imperfect, how much more will our perfect heavenly father give us whatever we need? What do you think causes the disconnect there? Sin could, if it was unconfessed. I would say probably unbelief is the biggest one that plagues us. Do I really believe that my father will take care of me? Do I really believe that he will supply? Do I really believe that even though my mind can't make sense of this, no matter how much I've evaluated, he will still come in and he will still make all things right? Do I really Trust that? Do I really believe He is who He tells me He is? How about this? Well, let's 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 do this first, because asking here is obviously the obedience. There are two things that serve as major hinges in this sermon. I want to show you both of them. If you would go back to me, uh, go go back with me to chapter five. And if we were to just read through this, we would go, huh? I don't understand what in the world that means. And that's because we're reading it, we're not studying it. And for all intents and purposes, we need to slow down with God's word, go slowly through it, and think critically about what he's saying here. Watch what Jesus says, starting in verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Does everybody see that? Now, sometime we would sit here and we would say, well, that means the entire Old Testament. I would agree with you on that point. But I would all say that it's equally as plausible that what Jesus is talking about here is everything that the law commanded in the Old Testament, he was going to take care of it completely. He's not here to abolish it. And every prophecy that was ever spoken by the prophets, he is going to uphold it. And if the emphasis is on those two points, and he's not just using that as a, as a uh, phraseology or whatever you want to say to cover the expanse of the Old Testament, so be it, okay? But I think he's a little bit more specific about what he's talking about. Now watch what he says here. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to what? Now stop for a second, because I'm going to ask you a trivia question, and if you miss it, you will not make it to final jeopardy. Who fulfills the law? Are you sure? Pay attention to that. If Jesus fulfills the law, then what bearing does the law have on you and I? None. None. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to bring it to completion. He came to get it done, lock, stock, and barrel. Nothing by him is left undone. And if there are prophecies that still need to be fulfilled, they are already guaranteed in eternity by God's perfect word, period. So all of that type of work that maybe we freak out about whenever we're looking at commandments are things that are already done up in Jesus perfectly. Does everybody see this? Please tell me you see it. What's that? This is not the law of liberty. This would be the law of Moses. Because of what he's done in fulfilling the law of Moses, we get to live in the law of liberty because he's already kept the law of requirement. Does that make sense? The law is God's perfect holiness, and it encourages Israel to come into intimacy with him. God never gave a commandment where he was looking at people going, now I'm I'm pretty sure that you're never going to accomplish any of this. He never does that. Anytime he gives a command, there's always an expectancy for it to be obeyed. The law could never be kept perfectly. This is why we see passages like, well, if one murders but does not steal, he's still broken the entire law because all you've got to do is break one to break the entire thing. Jesus is our perfect law keeper so that we do not have to. Does that make sense? So if that is the case, if he's done with all of it, he now opens the way by his death into a brand new way of living life that is not law-abiding, it is not in bondage to requirements, but instead, it is an understanding of being that gives way to a life of obedience without even trying to obey. That's the secret. You say, I don't even know what in the world you just said. Stick with me. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished, until Jesus fulfills it all. How do you know that it was okay for Jesus to go to the cross at the time that he did? Because at that moment, he had kept and fulfilled the law perfectly in his lifetime without ever breaking one. He could not go to the cross before that. In fact, I actually think that that's what it means. The time ordained for him by his father, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And I have to sit here and ask myself the question, why is his time not come yet? What else does he still have to do? The fact is, is he needs to fulfill the law perfectly on behalf of his people. There's something that qualifies him as a righteous sacrifice for sin. It's not just the fact that he's God in the flesh. That's just him and his position. That's him and his designation. That's just who he is, but it's through his experience with the temptation of sin, with the interaction of other people, you know, all those things that we often fail at and do really terrible. He did them perfectly, and in doing them perfectly, never broke the law in the midst of all of it, and now not only is he positionally righteous, but he's also practically righteous because he's demonstrated his righteous life for people to see. Does everybody see that? He's awesome. It's mind-blowing to me. And as the icing on top of that fine little cupcake, he decided to go ahead and just fulfill a whole bunch of prophecies about his first coming as well. What? And we got people that want to argue that the Scriptures aren't true. I cannot understand that. So now watch this, verse 9. Because here's the mistake we make mentally. We see the word commandment, we immediately think law. Don't do that. Okay? Because what he's talking about here in this passage is if Jesus is going to fulfill all of the law, the law is no longer an issue here. In fact, he's, you, if you're familiar with this, you know later on he says, you've said uh, th- that you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that if you look at a woman to lust with her, you've already committed adultery. Notice, he's saying that the standard that he is setting is much, much higher here than anything that the law ever said about what we're physically doing or not doing. Scorekeeping of how righteous I am or how many sins I have he says enough with all that i will fulfill the righteous requirements before god you live in the liberty that i will provide now watch what he says here whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in where's the location in the what the kingdom pay attention to that are they in the kingdom they are their least. Why? Because they annulled the commandments that Jesus is getting ready to unfold, and they actually taught others that they didn't need to follow him as well. That's pretty serious. Are they still in the kingdom? They are in the kingdom. What ranking do they have? Least. Now watch this. Look what it says. But whoever keeps, and what's interesting about that word keeps, if you've got a marginal note over there, you look over, it's the idea of does, the idea of practice, the idea of carrying something out. Whoever carries out his commandments and practices these commandments that he's giving here, look what it says and teaches them. In other words, you are not only seeking for those to be a reality in your life. You're turning around and letting other people know what is sound doctrine so that they can also walk in such a way as will give way to reward for them as well. Look what it says here. And teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just hearing, it's also doing. Oh my gosh, that means I need to read the Sermon on the Mount and I need to do everything that Jesus says in it. Is there a little bit of tension about that? Is there any anxiety about that? Is there maybe, well, good grief, I've been reading everything else. If Jesus is saying this about this sermon he's preaching, maybe I need to pay more attention. It's hard to pay attention during sermons, isn't it? Okay, nobody got that, exactly. Turn over to chapter seven, the very end, because here's the other hinge that this sermon rests on, and I want you to pay close attention to it. Look at verse 24. Therefore, in light of everything that he's just said, and I encourage you, read this, read this sermon through. Take notes. Ask questions. It'll impact your life. Therefore, everyone who, what's the word? Hear. Hears these words of mine and, and acts on them. Does that sound like being a hearer and an effectual doer? Notice that. Same concept. So notice, everything he's just taught, whoever hears it and whoever acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Raise your hand if you want to be known as a wise person. There's nothing vain about that, is there? Because the opposite of wise is dumb, foolish, stupid. Boy, we've got a lot of colorful language to put in that direction, don't we? And we know that if somebody else is going to classify us, or if God is going to give a divine evaluation about what we are like, we want to be as far away from that as possible. Why? Because we know that doesn't ever work out well. So now notice this. Built his house on the what? On the rock. And the rock is Jesus. Now stop for just a second. Calm down, holy rollers, okay? He's using it as an illustration here because a rock serves as a sound foundation that is not easily moved. Verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet did not fall. Why? For it had been founded on the rock. Notice it doesn't say that if you found your house on the rock, winds will never come, waves will never come, floods will never rise. Notice it doesn't say that. The storms are guaranteed. Why, sin? The question is, is how are you going to sustain? Notice I didn't say yourself. How are you going to sustain when these things come? What's it going to look like for you? What did you plant on? to make sure that you're not going to go anywhere. You know what floods do? Sweep things away. You ever seen a flood? Doesn't take much, does it? That current grab a hold of you, next thing you know, cars are in another state. What do winds do? Can winds blow things down? You ever experienced that or seen that? Good grief. They get bad enough, whole houses fall. Storms of life come. But if we listen to the doctrine... And we act upon it. We get it involved. We appropriate it in our lives. We're listening to what Jesus had to say and we're doing it. Notice we're not arguing. I love that he didn't say, now pray about it before you build. He didn't say that. We often use prayer as a means of subterfuge. We need to get out of that idea. If Jesus said it, we need to do it. So notice, it was founded on the rock. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. There's the person who's just a foolish hearer, an unwise hearer. Notice, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, same rain. The floods came, same floods. The winds blew, same winds, and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but do you realize that we have a picture of this, of somebody's life in Scripture? Isn't this what happened to Judas? I mean, this man was given power in Matthew chapter 10 to not just preach the kingdom to the Jews, but to heal the sick and raise the dead. Do you realize that there were some people that could have been walking around that God's power through Judas, he actually raised dead people to life? Now that to me is a mind-blowing, insane, if that shows up on Trivial Pursuit, it would be awesome. I can't even comprehend, fathom that idea. He had all this exposure to Jesus' teaching. He heard, get this, he heard everything. He heard everything Jesus said. Anytime you're reading through the Gospels, you see, and the 12, and the 12, and the 12. That's 11 plus him. He was with them. He heard it. He saw it. He witnessed things that we would long to see Jesus do. He heard Jesus' words. Good grief. Don't you just want to die sometimes to hear his voice? What would it sound like to have Jesus speak? Can you imagine that when you're standing there receiving that teaching and something inside of you just leaps and says, This is so right! It makes you identify with the guys who were traveling back from Emmaus. And it said, did our hearts not burn within us when he unfolded the scriptures? There's something that he is satisfying in that situation. And in Judas' life, the rain and the flood and the wind won. Took his house down actually committed suicide and it seems like that the rope snapped when he hung himself and when he hit the rock his guts burst everywhere now that's not me that's acts chapter one what a painful end for someone who had so much exposure to the right thing what was the problem do you believe that judas was a foolish man he's very foolish why It's not that he didn't know enough. In fact, Judas probably might know more about theology than you and I do. But what was his problem? He did not act. He was not an effectual doer. Now, here's what we do. Good grief, i got to get my life in order. i got to do a complete evaluation of everything that's going on, and I've got a clean house, spiritually speaking. Calm down, anxious people, okay? Because you all look real anxious right now, okay? Turn to chapter 6 if you want to know what the key to life is if you want to know how to get rid of this permanently oh i got it all the way over me good grief if you want to know how to get rid of this permanently this is the verse jesus is going to tell us how to make sure that all these things are happening all the time in our lives and notice it's not about us doing better and trying harder this is important Chapter 6, verse 33. This is the key to life. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Okay, nobody's excited about that. Let's do it again. Seek first His kingdom. Now stop and think about that. His promised coming rule on the earth is in a literal fashion, of which he will rule with the rod of iron and make all things right, which comes after the time that he gathers all of his children together. And for seven years we will be with him going through the judgment seat of Christ while tribulation and hell on earth is unfolding. And then when he returns, he will rule perfectly. I am to look forward to that day. My life is to be lived with that bullseye down the corridor. Does that make sense? So as I go, I'm not worried about if I'm doing this here. Did I pray enough here? Did I study enough here? Did I take care of this? Well, I needed to greet that person. I'm not worried about the back and forth. You'll get real tired real quick. All I'm worried about is moving forward with the singular focus of what is to come. And because I am so convinced that that is the greatest goal that will ever come across history as we know it, whether natural or supernatural, my life cannot help but to respond to the conviction that I'm embracing. Does that make sense? Notice it's not about me doing anything. It's about me focusing on what Jesus has already promised is coming. I don't have to be worried about if I'm doing this too much or not doing this enough or going here or doing that. You can get destroyed doing that and you will eat yourself up with legalism. Why is that? Because you will never be good enough. Let me go ahead and tell you, you will never be good enough to satisfy the quota that we have unnecessarily set for ourselves. Who fulfilled the law? Jesus did. He's the divine quota meter. He met it. That didn't make sense. You get it. So if I am to be a word doer, it's not so much on me doing as it is as much as me being. And what I need to be is everything that Christ has said about me because only what he has said is true about me. That's why when the enemy wants to come along in the recesses of our mind and play hopscotch in our head and say, well, nobody loves you. Nobody cares about you. You're worth nothing. Well, your life is just in shambles. Good grief. All you do is make bad choices. You can't seem to do anything right. You're such a terrible person. No one wants to be your friend. Nobody wants to hang out with you. You have no value. Blah, 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 blah. And Satan is just sitting there talking, talking, talking. Why is it that we often buy into what we're hearing from him, but we don't buy into the perfect and true things that God says about us? So all of those things have to be taken captive unto Christ because only Christ tells us the truth. And when we settle that garbage, when we get it to rest and out of the way, and we are refocused back on his kingdom and his righteousness. Why his righteousness? Let me ask you a question. How are you seen as righteous in God's sight? Through Jesus. You've seen me do this illustration. Imagine with me, I'm God, Jerry's a big old sinner. And so apart from Jesus, I could only see him as unregenerate, lost, bound for the lake of fire. But when he hears the message of the gospel and he responds in faith, I now put on Jesus' glasses. And I see Jerry now is perfectly righteous. There's no blemish in him whatsoever. Why is that? Because Jerry got his act together and did better so that the Father would finally accept him? No. It's because Jesus already paid it all. See, that's the grace of the Gospel. And when, when God puts on the Jesus glasses so that he can now look at Jerry as the child of God, giving him that right now that he never deserved, it's just given freely By his grace, he is now as as righteous as Jesus is in God's sight because he has the righteousness of Jesus credited to him. He's perfectly covered in Christ. So when I'm thinking about his kingdom... His righteousness, why? Because his kingdom is everything that I'm looking forward to and his righteousness is everything that he has given to me because of all the work that he has done, no work on my own. Now, if that doesn't make you worship, something is wrong with you. Because that's all Christ. And and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, if you want to know what the trick is to the Christian life, it's one word, Christ. Christ is our life it's all him. It's not me. And it's not worried about my scorekeeping. It's just Jesus all the time. And that's what he wants to get across here. You've heard it said like this. I tell you this, good grief, that sounds a lot more serious. So you've heard it's like this. I say, do this. Don't do that any longer. Do this. Don't we get like that in our Christian life? Well, we've got to be serious about the Lord. Then be serious about his kingdom and his righteousness because it's all done. It's all done. He's already done it all. Notice what it says. Seek first his kingdom, something that he provided, and his righteousness, something that he provided, and all these things will be added to you. Guess who adds them to you? Him. It's all about what he's provided. Jesus, you are such an amazing provider. You are the fulfillment of all that God requires. That is the perfect law of liberty. Thank you for all that your word says about us. Thank you for all that your word has unfolded for us to know. Thank you that when we believed in Christ, it was implanted in us. I pray, God, that we would receive it humbly that we would humble ourselves before you and we would stop seeing ourselves as we view ourselves and what the world tells us about ourselves and what people say we need to make better about ourselves that father we would instead see ourselves in everything that jesus has done because that's the only truth there is we've never thought about living our christian life in light of his kingdom and his righteousness God, I pray that today would be a new day that opens up that liberty, that freedom for us. We are undeserving, yes. We will never deserve it, yes. But that's grace. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.